Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, it's so good to hear the scriptures read by you, John. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm a little out of sorts too because I lost my Bible. And so I had to borrow, like, it's like a foreign Bible. It's like, oh, it wasn't. I mean, I'm sure it still works, but it just doesn't feel right. Um, Anyway, for those of you who don't know, my name is Aaron Bjorkland. I'm one of the pastors here at South. Normally I'm up here and get an opportunity to lead our singing, but today I get to bring uh, the, me- the message. Um, we're going to be going through this text, this great sermon, the Beatitudes. And I don't know if you, about you, but if you're like me, I've actually wrestled with these a little bit. I know I'm supposed to really like them, but they've confused me. Like, why does this person get the kingdom of God and that person gets the earth? And this person, you know, I don't, any, am I the only one? Okay, so if not, this, this sermon might help you. But if you completely understand it, then great. Um, you can just tune out. But uh, before we dive into that, I would like to pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity that we had to yield our hearts to you. Lord, and I pray this morning that as we encounter your word, this amazing sermon that you spoke, that you would make some new wine. That's our desire, God. Make some new wine in us, we pray. Amen. And amen. So on November 19th, 1863, a man by the name of Edward Everett stood up in a field and he gave a speech. It was the dedication ceremony of the Soldiers National Cemetery. It was created to house approximately 3,500 dead soldiers, the Northern troops who died on the battlefield there. He spoke for about two hours. He was a great orator. Uh, And then after he spoke, he sat down. And then the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, stood up. He'd also been invited to offer a few remarks. Abraham Lincoln stood up and he started his speech like this. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Can anyone tell me the name of the speech? Yeah, got it. Um, The Gettysburg Address, you're right. (laughs) Um, Perfect. You guys are dialed in. All right, so (laughs) uh, Abraham Lincoln had actually delivered another document, the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, 11 months prior to the Gettysburg Address that said this, that on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state shall be then, thenceforth, and forever free. And my question is, why don't we write like that anymore? (laughs) Wow. These speeches, these words have shaped our entire nation. They've shaped our society forever going forward. 
Words have the power to do that. Now fast forward uh, exactly 100 years from when the Gettysburg Address was spoken and another speech was offered. It goes like this, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. I'm doing it again. And live out the true meaning of the creed. If you've been around here, you heard me preach, I just cry through the whole thing. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Dr. Martin Luther King. You see, these words are powerful and they've shaped our society forever. We think differently. The temperature of our culture has shifted because of these words. You see, words can create worlds. Words are powerful things, right? Now I know uh, as someone who stands up here occasionally and offers a sermon or a speech, uh, not all speeches can change the world. Uh, funny story, a few last year sometime, uh, a congregation member came up to me and said, hey, I really feel like we need to teach on this particular subject. And I think it's really important for our congregation. And I agreed with them and I thanked them for their recommendation. And then uh, as they were walking away, I was thinking to myself, I preached a sermon on that subject two months prior. So um, not all words change the world, evidently. But some do. Let me give you one more example. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the beginning of one of the most Uh, actually historians, and I'm not just saying Christian historians, secular historians and Christian historians, some all agree that this is one of the most influential sermons ever spoken in the history of humanity. The Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of the New Testament that is based on the Sermon on the Mount have changed the world forever. Uh, Historian, And writer Tom Holland said this, not this Tom Holland, (laughs) this Tom Holland. I like when I was preparing the message, I was like short circuiting. I was like, am I I getting his name right? No, it's two Tom Hollands. All right, today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is principally, this is, uh, it is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in the post-Christian society still take it for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. Jesus starts this important sermon uh, and it changed the world. These words have literally changed all of human civilization. And I'm not just saying that for Christians. If you are an atheist here today, your worldview is shaped by this sermon. You may not know that, you may not believe that, but these were not principles that have existed prior to this sermon in the world. Now, if you weren't here last week, uh, when Alex kicked off our Sermon, on the seri- our Sermon on the Mount series, I would highly encourage you to come, and li- or not come, but go back and listen to that message. It's foundational for us. This sermon is so important that we're actually going to be spending our time in this sermon from now until Easter. That's about six months. We think this is really important stuff. This sermon has the power to transform us from the inside out. 
This sermon has the power to change this church forever. This sermon has the power to change the city, the state, this world. And I'm not just saying that as a thought experiment. It already has. This sermon has changed the world. It really has. And so our prayer as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount series is that we too would be transformed. Our, our desire, this is our, the cry of our heart as a staff as we've been thinking about this, is I know this is the longing of Alex as he's preaching through the sermon. And so this is our prayer. God, please do it again. And so maybe just pray that with me right now. God, please do it again and do it again in us. This sermon has wiggled its way into the hearts of Jesus' followers all throughout history, and it started revivals. It started uh, philanthropy movements to care for the needy and the poor, and we want them to do it again here. So here's the problem. Right off the bat, I think, I have this proposal for you, that Jesus was so effective in his teaching that he actually uh, has transformed the way we think so much so that we're actually gonna miss out on some of the shock value that his words would have had for his original audience. In other words, we're, we're kind of like a frog in a pot, right? Western civilization, this is us, and we've had time to acclimate to the kingdom values. We really have. Uh, like Tom Holland said. And so, but when Jesus first spoke these words, he, it was almost like throwing his audience into already boiling hot water. They were shocked, they were amazed, they were confused, they were confounded. It was so categorically different than anything they'd heard before that they were shocked. So my goal today, one of my goals today, this morning, is to increase and remind us of the shock value of this text. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open to Matthew chapter five. We do tend to put most of the texts on the screen here, but I'd encourage you, this one's worthwhile to find in your Bible and to sort of get the lay of the land and picture it in your head. So if you have your Bible, feel free to open there to Matthew chapter five. Before we dive into the sermon proper, I just wanna get the lay of the land, some context before we dive in. Last week, Alex reminded us that the purpose statement for the Sermon on the Mount is actually found in Matthew chapter four, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I don't know about you, but for much of my life, when I heard kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, I used to think that was heaven when you die. I thought it was synonymous with going to heaven when you die. This is the kingdom of God, right? Um, that is not what Jesus had in mind. So now that heaven, the heaven when you die and ultimately the new heavens and the new earth uh, that we will participate in in eternity, that's part of the kingdom of, of heaven. But Jesus says that the 2000 years ago when he walked the earth, the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, in him, he's inaugurating it there 2000 years ago when he's walking the earth. And so that means for us, over the past 2,000 years, his kingdom has been unfolding across humanity. It's been affecting the world around, and it will continue to unfold throughout history, and he ultimately will unfold into all of eternity. That's the kingdom of God that he's talking about. He's essentially establishing a new nation. Like the speeches we heard earlier, uh, a nation that is founded on this principle that all men are created equal, this sermon is Jesus's constitution for his new nation that he's starting, all right? 
And then he goes around society, Alex explained last week, he goes around and he starts to gather to himself some disciples, right? We heard this last week. Again, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But uh, we learned from Alex that, uh, that if in a Jewish society you were invited to, everyone went through an educational system. And at some point they decided that you, if you had enough educational prowess, academic prowess and spiritual prowess, then you could go to higher education. If not, you would become a tradesperson. And Jesus gathers to himself some fishermen. So they're tradespeople. These are the high school dropouts of society. See, the highest form of education in that society was the doctoral program and the master's level program was to become an apprentice or a disciple of a rabbi. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna invite you to be my disciples. And then he travels around society and he gathers the sick and the needy and the poor and the demon possessed and the lame. He goes to Jewish cities and to Gentile cities, the insiders and the outsiders. And this crowd just starts to accumulate around him. And that's where, that's the setting. So can you picture it with me? Maybe even just do that right now. He climbs up in the mountain and there's this crowd of misfits in humanity gathered around him, the lame, the sick, the poor, the needy, the despised, the outsiders, the insiders, and they're leaning in and Jesus starts to speak to his disciples and the crowds are leaning in with bated breath. In other words, this is what his audience looked like. <laughs> Has anyone seen Rudolph and the and the island of the misfit toys. <laughs> this is the content, the content of his audience. It's, it's a crowd of misfits in humanity. And then he reads, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I added this one in, Alex will cover this more next week. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. So the first beatitude we get starts like this, blessed. And I, I need to unpack this word blessed or blessed for us. And I, I told you we're gonna be in the Sermon on the Mount from now until uh, Easter, uh, but I, I promise you we're not gonna unpack every single word in the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's not six months, or it, that would be 16 years. So, but I think it's worthwhile for us to linger on blessed here because it shows up in all of the Beatitudes. And so if we understand it there, it's the same word throughout the rest of them. Jesus had two options, two primary options that if he wanted to communicate blessing. The first word he could have used would have been this word. Eulogio. This is a word that means blessing. It's to bestow the bestowal of a special favor to call or from God specifically to call down God's gracious power. So this is the word that you would use if you wanted to say God blessed someone. He reached down. It's an active word. God taking action on a person or on a group of people. That's the word Jesus would have used, but that's not the word he uses. Instead, this is the word he uses. Makarios, this means one who is recognized to be favored, blessed, fortunate, or happy, or privileged. In other words, uh, this is a person, when you look at their life and you see the circumstance in their life, you're like, man, that person's so blessed, right? This is hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> Has anyone seen this on social media? Hashtag blessed. Typically, it's a, 
typically it's like a photograph of a mom watching her children play duck, duck, goose in their perfect outfits in their immaculately clean mansion with the smell of sourdough, fresh baked homemade sourdough bread wafting through the edge. Hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> That's Makarios. Or perhaps it's the, it's the guy who is taking a photograph of the sunset kissed mountains while standing in waders in the North Platte River, fly fishing with his Ford F-150 Raptor in the background. Hashtag blessed, right? So that's the idea of blessed. It's an acknowledge, like you look at their life and you're like, that's blessing, right? So that's the word that Jesus uses. And then we see hashtag blessed are the poor in spirit. The word poor there is this word here. I tried to learn this word, but it's a hard Greek word to pronounce because you have to go Anyway, extremely inferior in quality, miserable, shabby, or destitute. And so if I were to rewrite this verse to reflect that, it's blessed are the very spiritually inferior people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what in the world is going on here? If you've ever wrestled with that question, like why are the spiritually inferior people blessed, then you're not alone. This has been one of the verses that is most difficult for translators to sort of wrap their minds around because they're trying to, it's the, the constructions are difficult, that sort of thing. Commentators for years have struggled with this and there's been multiple interpretations. So let me say that right up front. There have been multiple interpretations. But I think that scholarship in recent years have all started to land in a similar place here and it's a different way than I had expected. If you've ever wrestled with it, you're not alone. So the, one of the ways that commentators have taken this verse is to, to think of spiritual poverty as synonymous with humility, right? In other words, if you're poor in spirit, you're a person that recognizes their spiritual need. And then once you recognize your spiritual need, you're humbled and therefore you get access to the kingdom of God, right? That's a common way that this text is read. The problem with that is the first phrase doesn't mean weak spiritually. It means inferior spiritually, extremely inferior. It's actually a very poignant, powerful word. This is the atheist. It's the one who doesn't give much, doesn't care much about spirituality at all. This is the person who's immature. Like they love God, but their theology is a little, little wonky. They, they believe a little bit of this religion and a little bit of that religion. It's like, this is the spiritually immature person. This is Jesus's disciples. The men who were sitting right in front of them, remember they were the high school dropouts. And in that context, it was a religious inferiority that disqualified them. Yes, and an educational inferiority. So imagine and picture who's sitting and listening to him right then. They're the spiritually inferior people. If Jesus had wanted to communicate humility, he had far better words to use uh, to communicate humility. Uh, the word for humility is not even connected to this verse. So now you might ask, be asking yourself, isn't a recognition of my spiritual need a good thing? Isn't that a good thing? 
Absolutely. I would absolutely agree with that. I think it's biblical. I think recognizing if you're spiritually immature, recognizing it goes a long way to helping you encounter the grace of God and to grow in maturity. In fact, I think that elsewhere in the Bible, it teaches that in the book of Matthew itself, uh, Matthew 23, 12, Jesus says this, for those who uh, exalt themselves will be humbled. That's a word that would have been great in this context, if that's what he meant. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So I think it's a biblical idea to humble yourself before God and then receive grace. Absolutely. The question for us is, is that what Jesus is actually saying here? And I don't think it is. See, Dallas Willard uh, put it well when he said this, such a way of reading the Beatitudes also gives various other kinds of people automatic access to the kingdom of the heavens. If they are not in a position to be humble-minded, then perhaps they can manage to mourn or be meek or become persecuted. And then, on, uh, and then one of the other Beatitudes will, on this interpretation in question, take over and secure their blessedness. Here we have full-blown, if not salvation by works, then possibly salvation by attitude. So just become aware of your spiritual uh, brokenness and then it qualifies you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You may have heard this story. I heard this story from a pastor growing up about the most humble man in church. Uh, maybe you've heard the story. It's a, a, an elderly man in the church, maybe serves a ton, gives and gives and gives of himself and the pastor wanted to honor him. So he made him a button that said the most humble man in church. And after about six months, the pastor said, okay, now you got to take it off now. It's no longer true. Um, this is sort of the problem with humility, right? Once I recognize I'm humble, then I lose it. And this is the challenge of this text. Now, I recognize, first of all, that this is di a different way of reading this passage than you may have grown up with. I feel that uh, that's, that was me too. And so if you're still not... Um, if you're still wrestling with that, I, I get it. That's fine. That's actually one of the reasons why we have the Red Couch Theology podcast. If you're still wrestling, you still have questions. You're like, I don't know if I buy it yet. That's fine. You can, we have now have a website, redcouchtheology.com. And I'd be more than glad in the next, this coming week's episode to do a deep dive on a question that you might have about this text. So how are we doing, church? We've made it about 10 words in, not even 10 words in. And uh, it's already getting a little confusing and hairy. And I haven't even told you. I've told you what I think it doesn't mean. I haven't even told you what I think it does mean. I think it's helpful for us to get to what does this mean to unpack one more word in the Greek, this little word, for. The word is hati, and it's a, it's a clause. It's a marker of a causality or meaning because, for, or since. Um, in other words, that little word for, blessed are the poor in spirit for or because theirs is the kingdom of God. It's almost like him saying uh, the poor in spirit are blessed because they inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so we've, we've sort of assembled all of these little Greek word studies. Let's put it all together. Uh, my second year of Greek class, we had to translate the, first, the book of 1 John, and our professor made us translate every single verse twice. First was a very wooden translation, word for word, word for word, word for word. And then he wanted us to translate it with a highly interpretive translation that demonstrated our word study, the figures of speech, the exegesis, the context, and all of it. And so we're going to do that today. Here is my translation of the first 
of the first beatitude. People who are considered spiritually inferior should think of themselves as hashtag blessed because they are invited to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Let me say that again. People who are considered spiritually inferior should think of themselves as blessed because they are invited to my kingdom. This is what he's saying. And a picture who he's saying it to. Remember, this is who he's saying it to, right? These misfits, these high school dropouts, these broken, these lame. (laughs) He's looking at fishermen. Listen, listen, listen. Even the spiritually inferior are invited to Jesus' kingdom. I love that. I love that. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's how you felt for much of your life. Perhaps you had an older sibling who did everything right. They went to the right school, they did their homework well, they read their Bibles, they were a leader in the youth group, they did everything right, check, 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 and you were not that way. You went off the deep end. You did the things you weren't supposed to do. You sinned. You did the things that everyone said and your family of origin said, no, this is a bad thing. Bad, 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 bad. And now maybe now you're just just now thinking about reengaging things of faith. And let me tell you the same thing that Jesus said to his misfit disciples. You're blessed because you're invited. You're blessed because you're invited. (laughs) So now that we understand the sort of the flow of thought here, um, I wanna wanna just fly through because the same logical flow of thought applies to the rest of the Beatitudes. So I'm just gonna fly through some of the rest of these. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Here's my highly interpretive translation. People who have had really bad things happen to them are hashtag blessed because in my kingdom they will find comfort. You know, people who are mourning, bad stuff's happened to them, right? It's the loss of a child or a friend that moves away or the loss of a job or the loss of a dream. If you're mourning, bad stuff's happened to you. And in Jesus's day, they actually might've even said, if bad stuff's happened to you, it's because you're bad. That was a very common belief in Jesus's day. But Jesus is saying, hey, 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 that might be you but you're blessed because in my kingdom, I'm gonna comfort you. The next one, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Here's my highly interpretive translation. People who are shy, unassertive, maybe maybe sometimes spineless people with low self-esteem are blessed because they don't need to assert themselves. They inherit their father's world. In a Greco-Roman world, uh, it would have shocked you to see some of the ad campaigns for politicians back then. You know, it was emperors and all these sorts of, one of their ad campaigns made up something like this. Hey, uh, you should vote for me because I killed more people and I took advantage of more women. Vote for me. This was a common, like that was the way society saw the strong, the one who can beat up all the other people, that's the good life. That's the good person, right? Uh, And there's stories about that all throughout the Greco-Roman world. But we don't need to be that way in the kingdom of God because we have an advocate and we don't need to stand up for ourselves because our inheritance comes from our father and we inherit his world. How about this one? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
the person who craves justice but never seems to find it. They're, they're hungering, they long for justice, they see an injustice in the world and they can't stand it, or maybe they've been hurt, they've been treated unjustly and they're like, it's never been dealt with, it's never had enough, I'm just craving justice, I want things to be right, that's okay, they're hashtag blessed because God's justice is full and complete in the cross of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. These are people who are always giving themselves and giving of themselves and are often taken advantage of are blessed because in Jesus' economy, they will receive more than they could ever give away. (laughs) This is a person who's constantly just showing mercy and sometimes that person, no one's paying attention to them. Not in the kingdom. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is perhaps the perfectionist who never is satisfied with themselves or anybody else. They're hashtag blessed because their craving for perfection is satisfied when they look on their God. They're craving, they they want the world to be all in order, including their own lives. And when they look at the kingdom of God and the invitation of God, they're satisfied because God's plan and God is perfect. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. The peacemakers are uh, who always feel slightly on the outside because they see both sides of every single argument. They're blessed because they're on the inside of God's family. Uh, Perhaps the police officer who comes into the situation and he's always the bad guy of both parties because he's always trying to solve both sides or the, the, the person who's the mediator between everybody. They see both sides of the argument. They're always like, well, yeah, I see your point of view, but I, they don't really have a home. They're not gonna just claim a single party, a single platform. And so they feel a little bit out of, ordina- out of ordinary and out of place all the time. That's okay because they have a home in the kingdom of God. I wanna show you a story from John uh, that I filmed this week about um, his life and about some of the lives of these street kids. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in just a moment. Uh, my name is John Kongo Nyambura. If we could dim the lights, Kenya. that'd be great, sorry. And I'm married and I have two girls. And we work together with Tyler CS204, 2014. I'm Tyler Maxwell, I'm from here in Littleton, Colorado. And yeah, married with three kids. Uh, we work with street communities, street boys, street girls, and young mothers out in the streets of Nairobi and outcast of Nairobi. Yeah, so the ministry is kind of multifaceted. We have about 600 boys that we work with throughout the, the month in seven different locations in Nairobi. Uh, we have a, a drop-in center that South helped us build and have programs there, just art class, business training, a girls program, boys. They come, they eat, they bathe, wash their clothes. Probably the biggest reason our kids are in the street, the ones we work with, it's you have a, a mom with five kids and five mm-hmm. different fathers, and they, none of them mm-hmm. are around. So she, she does prostitution, drugs, alcohol. Yeah, just can't take care of them. And that that's, was my story. We grew up four different dads, alcoholic mom. And that we found me and my older brother, who's now deceased, going out in the street at the age of seven. 
and becoming the breadwinners of the family. Going out was because of we are hungry, we need food, and she's not able or she doesn't care, she's drunk. And with that, we found ourselves in the street. And you find there is more peace out there because mom, she was so aggressive. I have three marks here where she put a knife in a jiko, a stove, and then kind of punishing and for no reason. Up to date, I don't know what I did to deserve that. And so with this, it felt more safer being out in the street. As much as there is a lot and danger outside there, trying to get away from her felt like more safer. But and my older brother, who was older than me, about five years, uh, we were close uh, because uh, he, will, he was looking out for me. And uh, we became kind of breadwinners for the family. While I was out in the street in the city of Nairobi, every Sunday there was this lady who would come. She would take me to church. I, I didn't know her and she didn't know me, but she told me, can you come with me to church? And I said, yeah, we can go. <laughs> and so I went with her to church. Every Sunday I would look forward to going to church with her. I will just sit by her next, by her. And the fact that she didn't, she wasn't bothered by my look, that's all mattered, mattered to me. So I just wanted to be with her. I didn't care about how other people were looking at me or whether I'm stinking. The fact that she did not care about that, I just loved that. I still remember her because for me, I felt every time I was with her, I felt like I have a mother around. 1997, December 24th, we lost our mom. She was poisoned by her sister. And that was not easy for us, as much as we were straight. We, me and my brother, we loved my mom. It became worse than it was. And then something happened in my life. There was an organization that worked with street boys, and they took us for a camp. And in this camp, that's where spending few days in this camp made me desire to change my life. Uh, because I, in this camp I'm bathing, there is a bed I'm sleeping on, and so I, I realized I'm missing a lot, and right. I realized I need to change my life. That's when I started telling God I just need my life to change. Then after five days we out out of the camp, back in the street, I forgot everything. But something happened that I tried sniffing glue and I could not take it. I don't have a place to stay. I don't have anyone to stay with. So a friend who we were doing marijuana together, before I went to the coast, I approached him and I said, can I crash with you for maybe a month? And then I will, by that time, I'll be able to rent my own house, which ended up to being two years. Uh, but he was so kind to stay with me for two years. And that's when I started listening to teachings over the radio at this friend's house. He was listening to Calvary Chapel pastors. Pastor was speaking about selfishness. And for some reason, it felt like he's speaking to me because I loved God, I loved reading Bible, but I did not care about people. I did not care about anything. It's as long as it's my way, my things, I don't care about anyone else. And so that's when I, that's the moment where I gave my life to Christ. 
one of my aunts invited me to a church because I started telling them about these teachings we're listening. We went together, I went to church high. And so after the church, I approached the pastor, I told him I love God so much, but uh, I'm struggling. And what he told me was, there's nothing we can do about it. There's no way I can help you, but we'll pray for you and trust God will help you to overcome it. And to me, that's all I wanted to hear. Because so many people have approached me and told me, you can do this to quit, why don't you try this? And I've tried so hard to quit. But him not judging and not giving me options, the fact that he said they will pray for me, it made me realize or feel like somebody cares. If they will pray for me, then they care. While I was still going to the church, I felt God's love in a way that I've never felt. Mm. Reading the Bible, God calling me his son, the Bible saying God is our father, I realized I have a father. Despite that I've never met my dad or have him in my life, God can be my father. I felt so strong that I wanted to share the same with other people of my kind. So I approached the pastor and he asked me who is going to do that. I told him, you can do it. Or someone in the church can do it. The church can open the facility, allow them to come and bathe. And he said, but who is going to teach them? I said, you will teach them, you are the pastor. And he told me, you are the one who is going to do that. And I'm like, I can't. And so when we went out, made an invitation, uh, we had 70 boys showed up the first invite we did. Yeah. It was not easy. <clears throat> At the same time, I'm struggling with my own addictions. And then I felt so guilty that I wanted to quit the ministry. I talked with a friend and he asked me, God has called you to a ministry to help these people and you want to quit because of marijuana. And so I started praying and eventually God gave me victory over the addiction. The first three years of the ministry, or four, was God working in me, not actually the ministry. And this I realized much later. It was God growing me uh, through this ministry, uh, equipping me and uh, molding me to be able to serve Him and serve the street people. Yeah, Amy and I went to language school our first uh, year with uh, Ed and Kelly, who were the pastor that led him to Christ. And from the beginning, he, they kept saying, you need to meet John, you need to come see what John's doing in Guth Ryan. I kept telling him, no, we've got this stuff over here that we're doing. And Ed kept saying, you need to go see John. You need to go see John. So we decided after the second failure, we're not gonna go start something. We're gonna meet God where he's at, where he's already working and spent some time with John and said, yeah, this is, this is where God wants us. Probably 90% of them struggle with addiction and it's because of the life in the street. It's so hard and ruthless. So they need something to numb their reality. Like for us, it, it's, it was hard to sleep out in the street while you are sober. People calling you names. It's hard. Street people are perceived that they actually I don't think even society thinks about them. In Kenya, they are called chokora, meaning trash, or someone who scavenges in the trash. Unfortunately, that's the name even the government 
addresses them, they will say Chokora or Machokora. It's not a good name at all. Yeah, and so they, uh, I'll say street children or street people, street boys are the least in the community. It's nothing for a store owner to throw their dirty water on a street kid walking by. Mm-hmm. We had one, they had hot, boiling hot chai thrown on him. Yeah, they're abused, they're a nuisance is what they're looking at. And, and if you get into the Nairobi, into the downtown Nairobi, they think they're dangerous. They're considered to be dangerous and yeah. Uh, yeah. very looked down upon. Yeah, and they are dangerous because they are trying to protect themselves. Relationship is the beginning because if you love them, they will begin to feel, I can't misbehave in front of him. I can't say bad things in front of her. Now they have respect for you. And so with that, you are able to share with them the gospel. You are able to tell them this is not right. You are able to tell them this is the right way. This is how you should do this. But if you go out and start telling them the life you're living is bad, the things you're doing, the addiction and all that, then they will build a wall and they won't even listen to you. The girls program has been amazing. We've had like a dozen baptisms in the last six months. Girls are starting small businesses. Crazy stuff. One was a prostitute and had with three little kids and now she's selling peanuts and she's not prostitute anymore. Thank you to the church here. Supporting the ministry, you, you become part of what we are doing and you help us to reach even more. I realized I have a father, despite that I've never met my dad or have him in my life. God can be my father. I wanted to share the same with other people of my kind. Street kids are blessed because they have a good father. This is what we're talking about. I was supposed to, typically when I edit a video for a sermon, I try and get it down to five minutes. I'm, I'm editing this video and I'm thinking, do I even need to preach? <laughs> I'm not sure. So why is this important for us, church? If you felt like the outsider, The beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is to make sure that you know you are invited to Jesus' kingdom. This is where he starts. Now, just a warning, he's gonna get into your life and wiggle his way through the rest of the sermon and he's gonna see transformation happen. He's not gonna leave you where you are, but this is where he starts. You're invited to to Jesus' kingdom even if you feel like a misfit. Another thing that this is significant for us as a church is uh, perhaps you are already feeling like you, I am an insider. Um, And I want to encourage you that it might shock you who Jesus would invite. Church, it might shock you the types of people that Jesus would invite into this journey of faith with him. And Dallas Willard said it well, again in Divine Conspiracy, he said, in the United States, of course, he would tell us about the good Iraqi or the good communist or the good Muslim and so on. In some quarters, he would have, uh, he would have to be the good feminist or the good homosexual. 
And yet in others, the good Christian or the good church member would have been appropriate shock value. Indeed, given some of the current secular attitudes to speak of the good priest or good deacon might be very effective. All of these break up uh, pet generalizations concerning who most surely is or is not leading the eternal kind of life. So for us, church, it might shock us who Jesus would say, you know what? I might not leave you where you are, but I want you in. I'm going to start. You're, you're in. And then I'm going to gradually move you, move you towards transformation. So church, the list of people Jesus invites is shocking. So let's invite everyone to this amazing kingdom of God. John said, um, I'm going to invite the prayer team up and the worship team up. John said that that pastor said, I'm not going to fix your issues. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. And that was a transformative moment. And now prayer was part of what compelled him to transform his own life and ultimately reach a lot of kids. So this morning we have a prayer team. If you feel like the outsider, if you're wrestling with accepting those who are the outsiders, I'd encourage you to come up and receive prayer during this closing song. Um, we're gonna sing this, Broken Vessels. All these pieces broken and scattered, in mercy gathered, mended and whole, empty-handed but not forsaken. I've been set free, I've been set free. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you're invited, and you're invited, and you're invited, and you're invited. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.